Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. In this podcast, we go all bakery in the first half with earnings from two giants in the industry released last week. We'll also talk beer and a new list released by Whole Foods. But first this, you know about the perks that come with owning your own business like financial freedom, being your own boss, and having more control of your time. But maybe you're just not sure where to start. All of this could potentially be yours, though, when you open a UPS store franchise. The UPS store brings in over 35 years of franchising experience, and they were just ranked the number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. The UPS store brings in stability, the support and reputation of a world-renowned brand, and a proven business model with all the training and marketing support you'll ever need to make your entrepreneurial dreams come true. Special programs also exist for military veterans, and financing applies for those who qualify. The time to promote yourself to business owner could be now. Visit theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus. We begin this show with bakery giant Flowers Foods as they released earnings for their fiscal third quarter on Wednesday of last week. A little bit about this business, and we included this business, is the lead in Food Focus primarily because of Layton's love of Dave's Killer Bread, which is actually owned by Flowers Foods. It was bought by Flowers in 2015. They operate as an independent subsidiary. Dave's Killer Bread, by the way, was bought in August of that year for $275 million in cash. Now, Flowers Foods as a whole is headquartered in Thomasville, Georgia, and they're the second largest producer and marketer of bakery foods in the U.S. Grupo Bimbo, which is the owner of Bimbo, Sarah Lee, Mrs. Baird's, and others, is in the first spot. Flowers still has nearly 20% of the overall industry market share between Bimbo and Flowers. They make up nearly 50% of the baked goods industry business in the U.S. Private label brands make up another 23% or so. So for Flowers Foods, in addition to having the valuable Dave's Killer Bread, they have prominent brands including Nature's Own, Alpine Valley, Wonder Bread, the famous brand there, Cobblestone, Sunbeam, and Home Pride. They also make buns for the likes of Wendy's and Crystal as well. The company brought in 2016 revenue total in the year of $3.9 billion. They do operate a website, but it's really solely for investor relations, nutrition facts, recipes, employee information, that type of thing. They do not do any direct-to-consumer sales. So here, when we talk about these results, We're really just looking at wholesale sales on the whole. This company is a great company that we haven't talked about yet on either of our podcasts, Trent, but this is a company that struck my attention just because of their brand portfolio and brands are something they talked about a lot during their official press release on their website, but you can see Nature's Own. That's a very exciting brand. A lot of all-natural products there. I personally was a Nature's Own customer up until Dave's Killer Bread got my attention. And If you look at the press releases, it really describes the company as not only an operator or manufacturer of all these baked goods, but a marketer as well. And you can see that brought into their overall portfolio with Dave's Killer Bread. That's a company that really has done a lot in the recent years as far as marketing something that is differentiated in their market segment. You see it on the store shelves now in Costco, Sam's Club, other big box retailers. 
And it is sort of a flashy packaging that catches the user's attention or the customer's attention. You see the earnings for the third quarter ended October 7th. Sales increased 1.5%, which is a modest increase to $932.8 million. Excluding sales related to a divestiture, sales increased 2.1%. Overall percentage point changes in sales attributed to a number of factors, including pricing, volume, and the divestiture. You see that volume increased for the company 2.7% pricing and their overall product mix negative 0.6%. So a problematic area there in the divestiture took away 0.6% in sales. You see that Flowers Foods reported a net loss of $33.6 million for the quarter and therefore gap diluted earnings per share decreased to 35 cents per share to a loss of around 16 cents per share. Adjusted earnings per share, a positive 23 cents, taking out some one-time charges there. And expectations of 20 cents per share came in from those analysts, coming in around 21 cents per share last year for the same quarter. So you can see that it's not that good on the margin front, but overall, it sounded like the company struggled from those gap earnings. But from the retail side, if you dig a little deeper into their press release, the company did fairly well. On a consolidated basis, branded retail sales increased 3% to $550 million, and store-branded retail sales increased 1.1% to $138.6 million, while non-retail and other sales decreased 1.4% to $243 million. So you can see that was really where the opportunity is going to lie for the company. Buns and rolls were the main retail drivers, according to management. Increases in some vending segments as well. This is a company that does operate via third parties and distribution networks for vending. Vending not being an industry that we often talk about, but it seems as though all the latest food trends hit the vending industry at the very last. You notice the shift to organic and all natural foods. Well, Trent, if you go into any conventional store and you look inside their vending machine, they're still selling the same old food. So obviously, this is probably the last hit area for these companies, but this is an opportunity for Flowers Foods to really take advantage of an up-and-coming sector. Alan Shiver, Flowers Foods president and CEO, said that strong demand for Dave's Killer's Bread and outstanding execution and service in the marketplace drove growth in sales and market share during the quarter. Earnings were impacted by the expected strategic charges, and they said that's going to allow them long-term to lower their cost structure and streamline the company, increase focus on their strongest brands, and improve their supply chain. And that really is the theme here. Dave's Killer Bread is focused on real ingredients, oftentimes non-GMO and organic, and that is what customers are wanting. They specifically cited increase overall in organic product demand, and over the past few years, they have gained shelf space in a number of retailers and grocers with these new products and differentiated products, including, I had already mentioned, Costco and Sam's Club, but also Kroger, Whole Foods, and Sprouts. Dave's Killer brand is known for their bold packaging, like I said, that stands out versus their conventional offerings. Their CEO's blanket statements were largely positive as he cited strengths in many of their brands, not just Dave's Killer Bread but also important third-party distribution partners that have executed very well in the recent past. Obviously, you need those partners to deliver on time and to be able to have those products on the store shelves before the store opens. That's an integral part of all of this because like other items, bread has to be rotated. You have to get the fresh bread out in front. And I think this is very important. This is an important thing for the CEO 
to thank the customers and the partners there in their distribution network. The company cited increases in net sales during the time of the hurricanes. And this is interesting because if you look at a lot of the businesses that were negatively affected, bread is something that was probably falling off the shelves a little bit more than the other items while the hurricanes were making landfall or before the hurricanes made landfall. Bread is one of those important staple goods that you can compare it to eggs and milk and those other common items throughout their grocery store. And that is a curious dynamic for them. Increases in sales, that's going to be a short-term increase. Long-term, I am curious to see how those hurricanes affected their sales. You know, we talk about it constantly, but natural disasters, you mentioned eggs, bread, milk. Of course, those are the things that are more likely to fly off the shelves, even though a couple of those things, milk and eggs, are perishable. Bread, one of those things, it's a little bit less perishable, and that's one of the reasons why they saw their sales spike pre-hurricane. They're still focused on innovation and differentiation going forward, and they wanted to drive this home certainly during the earnings call. Shares of Flowers Foods, ticker FLO, gained over 3% in after-hours trading on Wednesday of last week. They ended Wednesday before the results came out around $18 per share, representing a $3.77 billion market cap and a price-to-earnings ratio of 24. Now, going forward, there's a lot of lofty expectations here for the company, and in terms of the strategy front, good marketing fundamentals will continue to be absolutely crucial, as well as constant improvement in their practices, especially since we're not likely to see food inflation take hold to the point where a lot of people expected it would, at least at this time. They're going to get benefits from food inflation maybe a year or two down the road, but at least in the time being, it's about refining internal processes to make sure they meet those lofty investor expectations. We move on to a second story, still in the bakery space with Hostess Brands Incorporated, as they also released earnings on last Wednesday. Under the stock symbol TWNK for Twinkies, we go a little bit under the hood and through the past with the Hostess Company as they began the Hostess Cupcake in 1919 and Twinkies in 1930. Obviously, those are the two prominent brands that they hold. As our listeners may be aware, the last few years have been somewhat tumultuous for the longtime operator. Originally, the first iteration of Hostess declared bankruptcy in 2004, but they somehow emerged from bankruptcy with more debt than it had entered in originally. They entered in Chapter 11 in 2012 in an attempt to wrangle concessions from their employee unions. When one went on strike, it was more or less enough to deal the final blow and force liquidation within the company. Enter Apollo Global Management, a company we've talked about time and time again in the private equity space, and C. Dean Metropolis and Company, who took over what was left and raised the company from the dead. Still, the Hostess Brands Incorporated we're talking about in this earnings call isn't actually the Hostess that was rescued more recently. The Apollo-owned Hostess was Hostess Holdings LP. The Hostess Holdings, along with Superior Cake Products, were both purchased in 2016 by Gore's Holdings Incorporated. The Hostess purchase came about after Hostess Brands Incorporated discussed an IPO last year. The publicly traded arm of Gore's acquired them as a spinoff. Gore's following the Hostess purchase changed their name to Hostess Brands Incorporated, and there we have the company we're going to be talking about today. But for accounting purchases, Hostess Holdings is the year-over-year comparison here. So as you can see, this is all very complicated, but after we've gotten past their historical past, we can see that Hostess now owns the largest amount in the United States in terms of market share in two main bakery subcategories, donuts and snack cakes. 
These two things make up nearly 50% of Hostess's sweet baked goods sector and category sales. We see that Hostess claims just two main categories in their business, those sweet baked goods and other, with other consisting of branded breads and buns, in-store bakery products, frozen retail, and licensing. This is a little bit interesting to us because as we are trying to dig through company information, we can see that nothing really gets divided up in their income statement. We just have a blanket top line revenue figure. We were actually curious to see how much to extract from licensing. For instance, they have hostess toys such as a snack oven for kids under the age of 10. So I personally think this is an interesting company because they have been able to leverage their overall brand recognition and go into some other areas that are extremely profitable. You talk about a win-win situation. That is the licensing sector. So I would be curious to see those revenues broken down. But for now, Trent, we just have the basic earnings. And as for their blanket earnings, they brought in $0.14 cents per share compared to $0.16 cents per share for the pro forma three months ended September 30th, 2016. And again, they're comparing against the LLC arms sales from last year because of that purchase that was made in the year's time between that. Analyst consensus estimates came in at $0.13 cents per share, so they did beat analyst expectations, if only slightly. As currently constructed, they actually didn't release earnings last year, so this is our first look at what last year's earnings showed up. Their first earnings under their current structure took place in May for this fiscal year's first quarter, so that's why we have to look at the historical pro forma measure they have in place. On a gap basis, net income came in just above $16 million, or about $10 million less than last year. Still, their earnings were opposite flowers in that they weren't quite as successful. Net revenue declined 2.0% year over year their comparison period from last year blame placed on hurricanes which this is one of the reasons why we say it's so different from flowers earnings release we talked about it already but bread one of those aspects that will actually see a boost in sales prior to natural disasters or prior to expected storms but here we see that the other category kind of lagging for hostess as some of their sweet baked goods probably not flying off the shelf since powdered donuts aren't exactly a staple good that you try to stock up on before a storm. So that was one of the difficult compares for Hostess when you compare them to Flowers. But Hostess also said the sales went down due to innovation in 2016. And this kind of made us scratch our heads a little bit because if they saw innovation bringing in sales last year, perhaps the company should continue constantly innovating like Flowers talked about throughout the course of their earnings release. This is something that a lot of other giants in the snack food industry have long known. How often, after all, do you see Lay's, for example, release a new potato chip flavor, or new flavors or scents in terms of candy as well? And this is something that Hostess, while they credited development from last year, it seems like their innovation has been relatively stagnant with the exception of one brand, which we'll talk about later on that they did release in the past year. Their top seven brands point of sale did increase 7.7% at least, but you could make the argument that maybe their legacy brands are no longer enough with this revenue decline. Something interesting we did note, their in-store net revenue actually grew on a top-line basis. It was 5.8% higher than it was last year. This taking place as certain other grocery-centric retailers are struggling with stagnation or worse, falling sales. And we should clarify now what's meant by in-store revenue. 
This is primarily through their superior line of products. They make a number of baked goods that appear in grocery store bakery sections, oftentimes not on a shelf, but sometimes in a four-way or sometimes actually right in front of the bakery. The design is such that you believe it was almost made in-house. These are packaged usually in cello wrap or clamshell containers with the superior logo somewhere on the label. But these sales are up 5.8% at a time when grocery stores are kind of struggling on the whole. Now, some of the major grocery retailers not struggling quite as much, but we've seen same-store sales right around 1% to 2% for some of the better operators in the space. And here we see that in this circumstance, Superior able to grow their line by 5.8% in stores, which certainly speaks latent to their marketing efforts in stores but also speaks to the proliferation in terms of distribution that they've been able to tap into with the larger organization and with Hostess and Superior combining forces. Speaking of their future and speaking of innovation, they were bullish on the launch of Hostess Bakery Petites. Hostess has never been known for being healthy, but this represents their main brand's entry into producing slightly better-for-you offerings. Granted, just about anything would be a better-for-you segment than a Twinkie. Still, this line features no artificial flavors, colors, or high-fructose corn syrup. You see that although management mentioned it a few times during their earnings call, no mention of it was made the actual sales of the line. So this is an interesting company, Trent, but one that really does have to evolve. People are looking at their ingredients a little bit more and noticing the high sugar content of not only their foods, but their beverages. And Hostess is really going to be taking a hit if people are going to continue on with that particular trend. I am curious to see what the next quarter has in store. But for now, you can see that the company, at least from a net income perspective, is still going to do fairly well for 2018. We talked about it at the beginning of this show, but there are a lot of perks that come with owning your own business, setting your own schedule, being your own boss, having control of time, but maybe you're just not sure where to start. Well, the numbers suggest that a great place, Layton, could be a UPS store franchise. A lot of investors or potential investors look at those numbers and they want to be risk averse. Well, the UPS store brings in 35 years of franchising experience. They offer stability and the support and reputation of the world-renowned brand during that time and a proven business model with all the training and marketing support to make your entrepreneurial dreams come true. That is exactly what it means to be risk averse. And stores are available now in both large and small markets across the country. And their experts will help find you a location that's just right. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify and special programs for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner could be now. Visit the UPSStoreFranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's the UPSStoreFranchising.com slash focus. We kickstart the second half of our show with beer. The Craft Brew Alliance released their earnings Wednesday after the bell. This would be last Wednesday. A little bit about Craft Brew Alliance, Layton. They were founded in July of 2008, headquartered in Portland, Oregon, but they have roots that go even further back than that. The company is exactly what its name would indicate. Craft Brew Alliance is an alliance. They came together in 2008 with Red Hook Ale Brewery and Widmer Brothers Brewery. Craft Brew Alliance acquired Kona Brewing Company on October 1st, 2010. Brothers Kurt and Rob Widmer started the Widmer Brewery and still own shares of Craft Brew Alliance and a significant stake by all accounts. A larger stake is held by Anheuser-Busch InBev, however, who owned around 31% of the company in 2013. 
It is unclear whether or not they still own that stake or not, or maybe potentially they own more of the company. The company now prides itself on being the fifth largest craft brewing company in the United States with multiple brands. And Trent, this is interesting because Anheuser-Busch InBev, it's been no secret. They want in on craft, and this is one way, one avenue for them to do just that. Although the American Craft Brewers Association might question the craft designation now since InBev does have a significant stake, Kona Brewing Company, their bigger, more national brand, followed by what they call regional players in the Appalachian Mountain Brewery, Cisco Brewers, and Omission Brewing Company, Red Hook Brewery, and Square Mile Cider Company. Those are all very prominent craft brewers around the country, a lot smaller, so I think their designation of craft is fitting for this particular company. The oldest brand, Red Hook, dates back to 1981, so it gives you some glimpse into the depth of this company, the historical past at least, and we see they have a more complete national distribution, as does Omission, a gluten-removed beer. So now you see that the brands are what the company nurtures, so they're more of a holding company, and they play more of a supportive role overall, seemingly being more hands-off in terms of innovations. Again, a credit to the fact that they're focused on being craft-aligned. The larger mission of the corporate entity would be to ensure the widespread distribution of all of their beer, which again would be aided from Anheuser's reported stake in the business. Obviously, they have a massive distribution network they can help leverage out. And that very distribution network now means that some of their brand portfolio exists in all 50 states, 30 different countries as of 2017, and still growing. We move on to earnings from the third quarter. We see that sales increased 3% to $56.6 million for the third quarter and 3% to $161.5 million over comparable periods in 2016. So they were up against tough quarters, but they were able to squeak out some increases here. More revenue per barrel. However, shipments were flat year over year. So speaking of volume, that was flat. Margins increased dramatically as they were able to showcase pricing power for some of their more prominent brands. Gross profit increased by 14%. Again, a simple function of being able to have a higher price point and yet on the same volume. So gross margin expanded by 350 basis points to around 34.2%. And this is where the company is going to have to have success if they're going to want to compete with some of the smaller breweries and also this perception that despite the fact that their name is Craft Brew Alliance, many people don't actually consider them craft. So as Leighton mentioned, raising prices, but also being more efficient in shipping and distribution. Anytime you can increase that bottom line and increase your margin, that's a good thing because shipments, depletions, that type of thing may be flat for the company going forward. Their diluted earnings per share came in at nine cents they were expected to come in at seven cents per share so a little bit of an analyst beat after notching three cents per share last year in the same quarter and while volume stayed still selling general and administrative expenses did not sgna for the third quarter was 16.3 million which represented a three percent increase over the third quarter of last year and year to date, it's a 2% increase over the first nine months of last year. More of what they called in-market promotional costs. So in the beer industry, you have a lot of signage, but also local advertisements 
to try and promote these products, as well as costs related to the reorganization of some of their IT resources, with the only benefits coming, at least for now, by way of this general and administrative costs in the future. Some of our takeaways and also the company's guidance going forward. Kona was mentioned a lot in this particular earnings call. Kona, they talk about as one of their fully nationwide brands for the company. And Kona, when you look at what Kona represents, the company and Andy Thomas, their CEO, mentioned that Kona is one of their bright spots, if not their main bright spot for the future as their business fundamentals on the Kona side continue to improve and brand recognition continues to go up for Kona. The company still sees pricing increases for the full fiscal year up 1% to 2%. That means that despite the rhetoric of craft beer being commoditized, the winners still able to prove out an inelastic pricing dynamic. Total shipments are now expected to range between a decrease of 4% and a decrease of 2% because of their devotion to Kona distribution, other less performing brands. So the less they distribute some of those other brands, the more you're going to see a decrease in shipments. But they hope they can play into Kona for the future and really grow that brand over some of their other segments. Capital expenditures will focus on their two best segments, not only the Kona Brewery, but also the Red Hook Brewery and Brew Pub just outside of Seattle. Red Hook, of course, based right around Woodenville, Washington. Somewhat of a theme in this particular food focus is cost savings, which was emphasized throughout management statements. Now, we believe there's a fine line between staying nimble through said competitive market segments like craft brew, yet trying to cut back on certain costs that are either associated with production or corporate administrative costs. A company can grow while cutting back, but there's no doubt that cutting back in certain areas limits growth factors in those particular areas. But again, as long as margins outweigh the limits on growth factors, Craft Brew Alliance will be fine. And I think both of us were pretty impressed with this last quarter, how much they were able to boost their margins, despite the fact that depletions were more or less flat up slightly, and despite the fact that distribution was about the same. Shares of Craft Brew Alliance ticker Brew were up in Wednesday's trading after the earnings call with positive vibes leading into earnings to $17.70 per share. That was a 3% bump over Tuesday's close. They're almost even year-to-date. In January, the share price was hovering around $17 per share with a $341 million market cap. Well, our final story in this edition of the Food Focus podcast has to do with Whole Foods, as the now Amazon-owned version of Whole Foods tosses out an earlier-than-normal list of the top food trends they're looking at for next year. Usually, the list comes out in December, several weeks ahead of that now, and we wanted to kind of close out the show by taking a look at some of these food trends that Whole Foods is spotting. I'll do the first five, Leighton will do the last five. One of the first five that really caught my eye was flower flavors. And this is something that was actually brought up to me by a representative with a major flavoring and syrup company in the U.S. She mentioned to me that they're seeing a lot of momentum surrounding lavender, a lot of momentum surrounding those floral flavors. Another one is violet, in fact. So lavender, violet, already popular for them. Whole Foods believes this momentum will continue. They talked about powders as well. So powdered flavors, powdered egg whites is a mechanism for protein. We've seen powdered peanut butter with brands like PB2 really take off in recent history. They talked about mushrooms and actually 
mushroom steeped tea and mushroom steeped coffee as well as a mechanism for some forms of restorative health. Middle Eastern cuisine, which I honestly think Whole Foods is a little bit behind on including in this list. I feel like Middle Eastern cuisine really started to pop in 2016 and earlier portion of this year. I think by the time 2018 rolls around, it'll be pretty much a full-fledged accepted portion of the food family in the United States in particular. And then transparency, which I also think that probably peaked in 2015 or 2016. We've seen a lot of brands talking about transparency in earnings calls over the last three to four years. As I take over the last five food trends, we're looking at plant-based meat and dairy products. This is interesting because this is not only a trend that we're going to see probably within the next year, but one that we've already been seeing and one that the likes of Chipotle have actually jumped on with. So a lot of interesting things happening in that category. And this is followed by puffed and popped snacks. And this is, again, something we've already been seeing trending in big box stores as they carry a lot of limited time offerings and seasonal items on their shelves. What comes to mind for me is Annie's devotion to this particular segment. You see a lot of popcorn, a lot of innovative snacks that are really focused on having those non-GMO ingredients, yet carry the taste of something you would see in those conventional products from years past. Next, we have shellless tacos and traditional style tacos. Shellless tacos, something we've actually talked about with Taco Bell as of late. So again, these themes, these traits, these different trends that we're seeing throughout the food industry by way of Whole Foods, something that have already been taking off, and this is something that they can leverage their data with. Obviously, they're going to be very data intensified with Amazon coming on board, but you see that These are things that have already been happening throughout the food industry over the past couple of years, but perhaps there will be increased momentum in 2018 after all. And something we have not talked about and something that really took me by surprise because I hadn't really thought of it was no waste cooking. The idea that you can minimize what goes in the trash from all of the cooking methods. And this really ties into a company we've talked about here recently. They just had their IPO, Blue Apron. They've been struggling mightily. A lot of analysts, our friends over at The Motley Fool, have talked about them struggling. This is a company that really is trying to take advantage of at least some of that no-waste cooking in that all of your ingredients are going to be pre-packaged, it's all going to be very simple, and you're not going to have any waste in terms of the overall food, right? So when you cook, you only are cooking what you need, and that's it. So that sort of plays into that trend. I would like to see that actually increase going forward. That's another positive spin you can put in terms of PR if you're a company that can offer no-waste cooking or some other segments, like a grocery store may offer some meal kits that have that no-waste cooking benefit. And lastly, we have carbonated water and beverages. Flavored water has been somewhat bullish as of late, but you see a lot of legacy companies trying to take part in flavored water offerings, trying to have a sports niche as well. Here recently on the podcast, Trent talked about having some body armor drink, which actually just signed an agreement, an exclusive agreement with the UFC, and they now have Kobe Bryant on board as a main marketer. So this is something that's going to be very interesting, yet it is a little interesting in the fact that a lot of studies here recently in the past two to three years have come out and said anything carbonated is somewhat detrimental to your health in certain aspects, in certain controlled studies. So A lot of interesting things happening in this category. Not all health-centric, however. A lot of things that you could have maybe seen coming over the last 12 months or so. 
And we'd like to keep in mind the fact that in the past, these lists are usually about eh, 50 to 60% accurate by the time all is said and done. We went back on a previous Food Focus and talked about this. When you go back to 2015, 2016, look at some of those food trends. Not all of them certainly are panning out, but we feel like this year's list maybe not as aggressive in trying to forecast some of the undercurrent trends because a lot of what's mentioned in this list, I feel like, peaked maybe a year or two years ago or at least came up on the upswing as a top food trend. So I think this list may be a little bit less ambitious. I don't know if the Amazon factor has anything to do with that, but again, Whole Foods in the news this week for setting forth some of these food trends. And particularly with things like carbonated water, plant-based meat and dairy products, and also with transparency and mushrooms. I think a lot of these things have had their moments over the past couple of years. So I don't know that this is anything new really to speak of for 2018. Well, we'll close out today's show with our final segment, a segment we call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I tell you about one product that's new to the world of food or new to us that we tried over the last week. And we begin with Leighton. I went to Target because they were trying to make me use my Target credit card that was actually just activated. And because of that, I ended up following through the grocery aisles and seeing that they had a few things on sale. And one caught my eye because I had actually had one iteration of this before in a previous purchase at Costco. I'm talking Kodiak Cakes, which is the Power Cake brand, 100% whole grain, protein-packed, dark chocolate, flapjack, and waffle mix. So that's a lot to take in there, but basically this is just a pancake mix for all of you who want a simplistic measure of how to really take in what I just said. But this really caught my eye because it is a dark chocolate pancake mix. doesn't have chocolate chips or anything like that. What it does have is cocoa powder processed within the mix. And for that mix, again, one of the reasons why I was a customer for this particular brand in the past was because it's non-GMO. And all of the mixes there from Kodiak Cakes carry no preservatives. And you don't really have to do much except just add water. So for me, I don't like to cook. I don't like GMO ingredients. And I really want to shy away from anything with preservatives. So at the end of the day, I tried this. The preparation was a little bit longer than I would like to have. But again, I'm not that good in the kitchen. So it was a very delicious pancake. I ended up eating about half of the box, which is... Uh, approximately five times according to the serving size what I should eat but for a normal serving size you're looking at normal calories around 190 four grams of fat two grams of saturated fat only eight sugars so again a lot of consumers including myself including Trent are looking at the nutrition facts and in particular looking at the sugar count and this is something that really caught my eye because we're talking dark chocolate pancakes here with only 8 grams of sugar per serving, that's very healthy. In terms of the overall landscape and, and how people historically have just infused sugar to try to increase the taste, I think this is a very good derivative of that. And you see that 14 grams of protein also packs a punch there. For that protein, there it looks like they're using a protein blend, which consumes wheat protein isolate, whey protein concentrate, and milk protein isolate. So not bad there, and at a reasonable price point, $4.49, 50 cents off at the Target that I was shopping at, plus 5% off using my Target red card. So I recommend this highly. I recommend all of their products highly, and what's interesting about Kodiak Cakes is they've actually learned over the years that bigger is not necessarily better. If you want to try to diversify and have a different product mix, 
maybe smaller packages would entice the consumer to buy something along the 4 to $5 price point and understand your brand a little bit more. Well, I kept it in the breakfast section because I'm a big fan, or I was at least growing up, a big fan of Cocoa Pebbles. But I'm allergic to chocolate now as an adult, and I was going through the cereal aisle at my neighborhood grocery store, and I noticed that cinnamon pebbles are now a thing. In fact, they're a relatively new product for 2017, and so I picked up a box to try cinnamon pebbles per three-quarters cup serving of about 120 calories, one gram of fat, and 10 grams of those sugars. So they are a little bit more sugar-heavy than what Leighton ate, and I certainly didn't hold to the three-quarters cup serving size. I found this interesting because the texture was the same as what I remember for Cocoa Pebbles, but there was an overwhelming sweetness to the product. I honestly think the product could have been a little bit less sweet. It reminded me more of a cinnamon bun than just cinnamon cereal. So from that aspect, not so great. But I think overall, this is an acceptable product. It's one of those products that probably buy when it's on sale and, and not any other time. I think there are better cinnamon cereals to be had, especially cinnamon cereals that are all natural. However, this product is gluten-free, like several of their other Pebbles offerings. So it's just something to keep in mind if you have celiac disease or some other mechanism that keeps you from eating gluten. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Food Focus podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent. We'll be back with Retail Focus later on this week. We'll have an interview with Anthony Ferry of Price Spider. We'll talk about things such as the minimum advertised price for products and why it's important for brands to make sure that companies are adhering to that minimum advertised price. So an area of retail we don't really talk about a whole lot coming up on this week's Retail Focus podcast. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 